Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 1. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. Quartet, the gospel in four movements. That's what we're looking at in four consecutive Sundays, the four gospels. Just like we have four directions and four seasons, we have the four gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are four distinct yet complementary witnesses that together give us a full portrait of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need all of the Gospels just like we need the whole body of Christ. We need Catholics, we need Orthodox, we need Protestants, we need Pentecostals, we need Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so today we're looking at Luke. Luke is the third gospel written. Mark the first, then Matthew, and then Luke. I agree with uh, New Testament scholar Richard Bauckham who dates the writing of Luke around the year A.D. 80. In other words, Luke is writing his gospel of Jesus Christ about 50 years after the life of Jesus. Luke tells us in his introduction that he's not an eyewitness. He was not an eyewitness, but he did a thorough investigation and talked to eyewitnesses. And so Luke gathers his information from eyewitness accounts of those that knew Jesus during his life. But Luke was not one of those uh, eyewitnesses. So who was Luke? Well, uh, history and church tradition tells us that Luke was born in Antioch in Syria and that he was a Gentile, and that's very significant. Uh, Luke is the only Gentile contributor to the New Testament. Thus, he's the only Gentile contributor to the whole Bible. So if our Bible has 66 books, 64 of them are written by a Jewish hand. Two of them, Luke and Acts, are written by a Gentile. Uh, Luke is almost certainly also the only native speaker of Greek among the four gospel writers. You know, the New Testament was written originally in Greek, and Matthew and Mark and John are writing in Greek, but it's not their native language. It's a second language for them. Luke, on the other hand, is a native speaker, and I'm told by those who know such things, I wouldn't know, but I trust those that tell me, that his Greek is eloquent. And people who are scholars of biblical Greek love reading Luke and Acts because it's so well written, it's so elevated in language. Uh, Luke apparently was a physician. He is also the traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. 
And yes, he also gives us the, the, uh, the, the book that is the account of the Acts of the Apostles, which is mostly about the Apostle Paul. And uh, Luke was an eyewitness to much of that because he was a traveling companion of Paul. And so Paul had a, had a physician that traveled with him, which as often as Paul got beat up and stoned and whipped, that would probably be a helpful thing to have. He had his own personal doctor with him because he needed a doctor all the time probably. Uh, he, he wrote Luke first, and then he writes Acts. Um, and it, it's, uh, they go together. They actually go together. It's Luke, it's Luke, Acts. They should really be read. The problem is we have this arrangement. of It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And then, so you have John stuck in between Luke and Acts, but that does make sense too because you want the four Gospels together. John needs to be the last one, but it's, it's just a problem. We can't quite figure out how to do that, but, but you might want to uh, take a week sometime and just read Luke, Acts right in a row. All right, well, tradition also tells us that Luke wrote his Gospel in Achaia in Greeks, and then he also died in Boeotia, which is also a province in Greece. Uh, the Gospel of Luke is addressed to Theophilus, which means the lover of God. It's probably a literary device. I mean, there may have been a, a person named Theophilus. It's probably more, though, a clever way for Luke to address all of his subsequent readers. He, he's writing for us, and he calls us lovers of God. I like that. Luke gives us the most extensive account of the birth of Jesus. Any fans of Christmas here? Anybody love Christmas? If you love Christmas, you're very indebted to Luke. I mean, we wouldn't have Christmas and Christmas stories and Christmas carols and Christmas cards as we know them if we didn't have the Gospel of Luke because that's where most of that comes from. Most of what we know about Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes from the Gospel of Luke. He's the one that gives us those stories about Mary then traveling to Judea to see her cousin Elizabeth and the Magnificat. All of that comes out of the Gospel of Luke. Luke gives us the only story from the childhood of Jesus. If we didn't have Luke, all we would have is, is a birth narrative, and, and, and only Matthew does that. Uh, if we didn't have Luke, Mark and John just jump right in. Matthew gives a abbreviated account of his birth, but nobody talks about his childhood other than that one story in Luke where Jesus at the age of 12 stays behind in the temple when his family goes home and they can't find him, and they finally find him in the temple asking these questions and conversing with rabbis. That comes from Luke. There are 13 parables that are only found in the Gospel of Luke, including the prodigal son, which is probably our favorite, right? Uh, the Good Samaritan, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, those are only found in the Gospel of Luke. Luke uses hundreds of words uh, that are only found in Luke and Acts. In other words, he has a pretty sophisticated vocabulary. And so he uses words that Matthew, Mark, John, Paul don't use. That's part of being a native Greek speaker. Luke is by far the longest gospel. I know that Matthew has 28 chapters, while Luke only has 24, but the, just the chapters are longer. That's just how they, that was an arbitrary imposition on the text of how they would divide it up. But Luke is actually by far the longest of the four gospels. And it's interesting that, uh, I find this interesting. This may just bore you to tears. I'll get to the sermon. Hang in there. Uh, but Luke and Acts are both right at 19,000 words long, which is... The longest papyrus scrolls they had at that time were 35 feet long. 
He unrolled his 35 feet, and with a small script, you could write 19,000 words. And so Luke gets these two papyrus skulls and says, man, I'm going to fill them up. But you have to plan ahead, you know. You have to go, whoa, I'm running out of room here. And so he fills up these two scrolls, Luke and Acts. I know that's, that's, that's your pointless and useless information for the day, but I like it. Uh, Luke clearly has a better understanding of the Greco-Roman world than Matthew, Mark, or John. That's simply because he's very well-traveled. If you're hanging out with Paul, you're going to travel the world and have lots of stamps in your passport. That's what Luke did. And like Matthew, Mark, and John, Luke is more than a historian. Luke is also a theologian and something of a literary artist. Luke gives us the most human picture of Jesus. It's in Luke's gospel that Jesus sweats blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. This will stand in stark contrast with next Sunday when we finish this series and look at the Gospel of John, where John gives us a very elevated view of Christ, that that the divinity of Christ is emphasized in John, but the humanity of Jesus is emphasized in the Gospel of Luke. Um, If you talk about themes, two recurring ideas or activities, prayers and meals. Praying and eating. Praying and eating. Are, are big in the Gospel of Luke. As I read the Gospel this week, I paid special attention to that. In fact, I marked every time that they were eating or praying, and I found over 60 occurrences of Jesus with other people eating and praying. He could have called this Gospel, Eat, Pray, Die for the Sins of the World. That could have been the name of this. Um, so Luke stresses the practices of Jesus, his prayer practice that is forming him, his table practice of radical hospitality. These are stressed. There's also a strong emphasis on money. Uh, Money is a big deal in all the synoptic gospels, not so much in John, but in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but really it's emphasized in Luke. Uh, In Luke, you find Jesus talking a lot about money, uh, a deep concern for the poor and presenting certain challenges to the rich. And so that's Those are kind of the themes, that's what's in there, that's how it came about. Uh, But what I really want to do this morning, with the rest of the time I have, is to uh, talk about something that is, in fact, true of all four Gospels. I'm going to use Luke to talk about this, but this is something that is true of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and that is that the climax of the Gospel story, the story that the Gospels are telling, is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In fact, everything in all four Gospels moves toward the crucifixion. All four Gospels are arranged in such a way that you are being drawn toward that moment. There's foreshadowing, there's anticipation, there's building suspense, there's drama, and it all moves toward the crescendo of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This is so true that some have described the Gospels as passion narratives with an extended introduction. There's some truth to that because that is the most important part of the story that the Gospels are telling. The Gospels are the, the, Gospels are the story of the crucified Christ. So, the entire story in all four Gospels moves toward the crucifixion. The crucifixion is the pinnacle of the gospel story, not the resurrection. Mark, 
The first gospel writer, in his original ending, only has eight verses on the resurrection. Has two chapters on the crucifixion, eight verses on the resurrection. Now, of course, the resurrection is essential because the resurrection provides the light to shine upon the crucifixion. We interpret the crucifixion in the light of the resurrection, so the resurrection is essential. But you see, once we know who Jesus is, we know that resurrection is a foregone conclusion. I mean, once you figure out, as you're reading the story, you figure out, oh, this is the Son of God. Or as John will say, this is the Word of God made flesh. Well, he may die, but death won't hold him. Uh, death may swallow him, but death will not digest him. I mean, this is God. And so once you understand who Jesus is, you understand that in fact, resurrection is a foregone conclusion. It's the death of Jesus by crucifixion that surprises us. The resurrection is the light by which we look at Christ crucified. The resurrection confirms that Jesus is God, but it's the crucifixion that reveals who God is. Okay, the resurrection confirms that Jesus is God, but it's the crucifixion who, that truly reveals who God is. The living God is the crucified God who is revealed in Jesus Christ. If we did not have the gospel story, we could predict that God would conquer death, right? I mean, even an atheist will admit that. They'll say, well, if there is a God, if there is a God that is all of the omnis, you know, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful. If there is a God, then this God will conquer death. If we did not have the gospel story, we could predict that God would conquer death. But what we could never predict is that God would be crucified. That's a story that comes out of nowhere. That's what we didn't see coming. Ancient pagans could predict a God that would rise from the dead. They did not predict a God who would be crucified. If we want to know what God is really like, we must gaze upon the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 23, verses 33 and 34. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, Golgotha, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I read all of Scripture. I read all of the Bible from the interpretive center of this right here. Jesus Christ nailed to a cross praying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You see, if we're going to deal with the Bible, if we're going to be informed by the Bible, if we're going to have theology that is shaped by Scripture, we, it's not enough just to open up our Bible. We have to interpret Scripture. And this is not an easy thing. This presents all kinds of challenges. Scripture, it can't just be merely read. It has to be interpreted. So how do we go about it? Well, there's a lot that can be said, but I'll say this much. My interpretive center for the whole Bible is right here, Luke 23, verse 34 
Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. My interpretive center is not the law of Moses. It's not the conquest of Joshua. It's not the wars of David. It's not the thunderings of Elijah, as important as those all are. My interpretive center is Good Friday, Golgotha, Jesus on the cross, praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, I don't just follow Jesus as a teacher of the wisdom of God. First and foremost, I worship Jesus as the crucified God. In fact, the reason that I follow Jesus as a teacher of the wisdom of God is because I already have believed that Jesus is to be, that I worship him as the crucified God. And because I worship him as the crucified God, now I give heed to following his teaching. When Perry and I first walked the Camino de Santiago three years ago, the Holy Spirit gave me an assignment. The Holy Spirit told me to pay attention to every crucifix I see and to ask this question, what does this mean? And don't be too quick to give an answer. That's what the Holy Spirit added. Every crucifix I see. Well, if you're walking the Camino de Santiago, you see them constantly. It's 500 miles of of crucifixes and churches but just crucifixes along the roadside they're everywhere and so I am given an instruction that for these 40 days walking 500 miles every crucifixion I see crucifix I see try to pay attention to it acknowledge it look at it think about it for a moment and ask this question what does it mean and don't be too quick to give an answer so that's what I did so what what does it mean what what does it mean that Jesus, who we confess, is born of a virgin, is very God of very God, who is the Word made flesh, who announced the kingdom of God, who walked on, mirac- walked on water and performed miracles, raised the dead, healed the sick, ends up nailed to a tree. Ends up crucified at the behest of the Sanhedrin and under the authority of the Roman Empire. What does this mean? It means everything. I'm not being glib. I just say it means everything. It doesn't mean just one thing. It speaks to all that God is. To reduce the cross to just one simple meaning is to reduce the cross to something we can control and be done with. This is what I don't like about atonement theories. Personally, I don't use that phrase. I have to use it in conversation because people will ask me, they ask me all the time, what is your atonement theory? I said, I don't have one. I have lots of ideas. I have lots of ways of talking about the cross and understanding the cross, but I don't have just one. Like, like pick one. Because when we do that, with, oh, the cross means this. Only This is what it means. It means this. And very often people pick one that's even wrong just to make matters worse. They, okay, this is what the cross means, and now, now they're in control of it. Now they've locked it in position at some point in the past in history that it means this, and it no longer confronts them. It no longer challenges them. They're just done with it. I know what that means. I can't do that. The cross says everything that God has to say. This is where our salvation lies with the crucified Christ. This is why the Apostle Paul says, you know, 
That's what I preached. I preached Christ crucified. In fact, among the Corinthians, he said, I determined I would know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So, what does the cross mean? You could, you could phrase it, what is my atonement theory? And I'll say, well, I don't have just one. Uh, so I won't give just one response. I'll, just, I'll, I'll watch the clock here. I won't run out of time. We'll be okay. But I'll give you ten responses. But please do not hear me say, oh, the, Pastor Brian said the cross is these ten things. Well, yes, the cross is these ten things, and then the ten I didn't talk about, and then the ten I don't know about, and the ten that the church hasn't even discovered yet. I mean, it's ongoing revelation. So I, I stopped at ten. I could come up with more than ten. I have more than ten. But I stopped at ten because I said, well, it's only one Sunday, you know. Um, but then there's, the, like I said, there's the ten or the hundred that I don't know about. There are, the, there are the ten meanings of the cross that I've not yet seen. Maybe there's the meanings of the cross that the church itself, even 2000, after 2,000 years of reflection, still haven't quite comprehended. So, what is it? The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. What is it? Well, for one thing, it's the pinnacle of God's self-disclosure. God in the pinnacle of his self-disclosure to us. Beings created in his image. Beings with the capacity for self-reflection and reason. The pinnacle of God's self-disclosure is not a demonstration of power. And that's how we almost always think about God. To this day, you say, God, we think, oh man, all powerful. All power. And God is all power. But the pinnacle of God's self-disclosure is not a demonstration of power, but of self-giving, of surrender, of laying down His life. No one takes my life from me, Jesus says. I lay it down. So we look at Jesus Christ crucified as the pinnacle of God's self-disclosure. And for one thing, we discover a God who would rather die than kill His enemies. It's not, Father, avenge me for what they are doing. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. It's divine solidarity with all human suffering. I think it's the only thing that comes close to a theodicy. That is, the attempt to reconcile the power of God, the goodness of God, with the reality of pain and suffering in the world. If God is all good and all powerful, how come all the pain and suffering? Perhaps the, the part of the answer lies with, with freedom that allows room for everything to happen, anything to happen, and everything to happen, and it does. And much of it is tragic. The only theodicy I know of is that God does not exempt himself from it, but God in Christ becomes fully immersed in it. God doesn't stand away from our suffering. God says, no, I'll join you. I'll come down. I'll enter into it with you. And by his wounds we are healed. Jesus identifies with every able that lies slain by Cain. He identifies in solidarity with every one of them. What is the meaning of the crucifixion? It's the shaming of the principalities and powers. That is, those who rule 
by the power of death. You think about how our system mostly is arranged around the world is that institutions that even, even if they try to hide it, what they're actually doing is ruling through the capacity to kill, which means they're ruling by the power of death. Now, they claim that this is a good thing because they are wise and just. That's their claim. We are wise and just, and so therefore we should be entrusted with the power of death. And the cross exposes and shames the principalities for making that claim. Because you understand it's religion and government at its pinnacle of development that nails Jesus to a tree. And so they are shamed. They are neither wise nor just. They are filled with outrageous hubris. They are driven by greed and all the baser motives and the cross shames the principalities and powers. What is the cross? It's the point from which the Satan is driven out of the world. Jesus himself says that. He says, now is the judgment of the world, and now will the ruler of the world be cast out or driven out, pushed out. The Satan, the accuser, who dominates human beings through getting them to accuse and to blame and make scapegoats. The cross, when seen for what it is, is the place where we recognize that scapegoating and blaming and accusing others is satanic. And that Jesus becomes the ultimate scapegoat and he takes all the blame. And there's no one left to blame because Jesus took all the blame. And when there's no one to blame, the devil's out of business. And so the cross is where the devil is driven out of the world. It's the death by which Christ conquers death. What, 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 is, what, is, what, is the, what does the cross become? The cross, notice, it, I'm not saying it, it's, it's all of these things. The cross is, among all of the other things that is, the cross is a doorway for divinity to enter into death. Now, human beings from the beginning have all entered entered the door into death. We die, it's a portal, so we go through this door, we go down into death, and we're not heard from again. And that's, that's the great enigma, that's the great absurdity, that's the final disillusion that threatens to make a joke of all of life. That we live, three score and ten, and then we enter that door called death, Never to be heard of again. The cross is where God, divinity, enters the door of death. But Jesus, see, Jesus is the door. Jesus is the door. Jesus goes as the door through the door of death, that in death there might be a door to come out. <laughs> you've heard me talk, probably if you've been here in this church, and he while you've heard me talk many times about my dear, dear friend, Sister Mary Paula Thompson. You heard me talk about Sister Mary. She was Benedictine sister there in Clyde, Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. And uh, she was the first one. She read my book, Unconditional, and she invited me to come speak to those nuns. And they have become very, very dear friends. And she passed away this week. She passed away on Tuesday, maybe? Monday. Monday. 
At the age of 92, she was ready to go. I mean, you know, sometimes you would, you know, help her walk around there, the monastery, and there's the cemeteries right there. And uh, she would be walking by and she'd say, well, that's where I'm moving to next. And she would always say it would, you know, just kind of matter of fact with a twinkle in her eye. She, she passed away on Monday. Perry was able to go to her funeral yesterday. I wasn't, but Perry was able to go. But uh, because Jesus, through the cross, entered into death, now Christ fills all things everywhere with himself. Christ has filled death with himself. So when my good friend, Sister Mary Paula Thompson, went through that door, she didn't meet death, she didn't meet the grim reaper, she met Jesus Christ. Ha. That's a good meaning. That's a good meaning of the cross. I could just kind of stay there, but I want to give you these others here. Uh, it's the abolition of war and violence. The final battle is won by Christ on the cross and by the cross, not by a sword. War is an anachronism that belongs to the old age. The baptized belong to the future. Amen and amen. It's the supreme demonstration of the love of God. This is what Paul says. Paul says... Uh, God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Next Sunday, we'll look at John, most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Don't, don't make the mistake. Don't turn, that, don't turn that beautiful verse into an ugly verse by thinking of it as God so hated the world that he killed his only begotten son. God didn't kill Jesus. God didn't kill Jesus. The, the, the sin of the world killed Jesus. And God is in Christ forgiving the world as it's being done. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. So what, is, what, is, what does the crucifixion of Jesus mean? Well, it's, it's the refounding of the world around an axis of love. That's what Jesus says. At least that's I understand him saying, he says, and, and I, if I am lifted up, speaking of crucifixion, if I am lifted up on the cross, I will draw all people to myself. So a world that has been organized around an axis of power, that's what we, we're, we're so enthralled with, power, enforced by violence. A world that's organized around an axis of power enforced by violence is given a saving alternative. And as we gaze upon the cross and say, this is what's going to determine my life, we are drawn into a new orbit around an axis of love that's expressed in forgiveness. What does it mean? It's the enduring model of co-suffering love we are to follow. Remember, the cross is not merely what Jesus does. It's what He calls us to imitate. Jesus if you want to be my disciple, if you want to learn from me, if you want to be my follower, take up your cross and follow me. Yes, in many of these, in most of what I'm talking about, Jesus' death on the cross is unique. But there's also an aspect where it's a model that we are to follow. That's why we pray, Lord Jesus, you stretched out your arms of love upon the hard wood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you. The cruciform needs to be our posture in the world. 
The church is far too compelled to have other postures. The clenched fist of anger and protest. The wagging finger of shame and disapproval. The outstretched arm of being very exclusive. No, not you, not you. The posture the church is to have is this. Where we open ourselves to the whole world in the love of God. And if we are wounded, and we will be, we understand that by His wounds we are healed. And we continue to love. Finally, again, this is not exhaustive. These are just where I'm going to end because I thought 10 was a nice number. We could go on and on. I could go on and I'd reach my end, but that doesn't mean it's the end. As I said, there's all of the meanings of the cross I've not yet seen. But the last one I'm going to mention is it's the eternal moment in which the sin of the world is forgiven. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Not reconciling himself to the world. Reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their trespasses against them. That's what the Apostle Paul said. That the cross is the moment where all of the sin of the world coalesces into a hideous singularity. And the sins of the world, the sins of the world, all the sins, the pride, the arrogance, the lust, the greed, the violence, all, all the sins coalesce into a singular sin. The sin of the world. And it's sinned with great violence into the body of Jesus. And Jesus absorbs it in mass and forgives it in mass. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. So whatever else the Gospels are, communicating to us the teaching of Jesus. Yes, His resurrection. Yes, that He's God in flesh. Yes, that He's announcing the kingdom of God. Yes, that He's establishing and building His church. The whole trajectory of all four Gospels is to bring us to the cross. And to see that the living God is the crucified God. And every time we come to the table of the Lord, the Apostle Paul says, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And so we come today to participate in the body and blood of Jesus, which gives us life. Which gives us life. I should have preached about somehow how the cross is that which gives life to the world. That there's a direct connection between what happened in a historical moment 2,000 years ago at a place called Golgotha, and what's on this table today. There's a direct connection. The cross comes to this moment here, and it becomes bread and wine. It becomes body and blood that the life of Jesus might be given to us. Communion makes no sense without the cross. Communion is our direct connection with the cross. Because you, you and I were not at Golgotha on Good Friday in April of A.D. 30 or whenever it was. But we're right here. And this is the same thing. You're coming to this table and Jesus is still saying, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And the Father says, yes, son. Amen. Stand with me.